0: Uh, This morning, congregation, your Bible, we would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2 in your pew Bible. You can find it on page 1112. We'll be reading from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. We just note that with this passage and with this morning's sermon, we draw for this year... Uh, a conclusion to our advent series considering especially the incarnation or the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so we read from the inspired word of god Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12 now after jesus was born in bethlehem of judea in the days of herod the king behold wise men from the east came to jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the jews For we have seen His star in the east and have come to worship Him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, which they had seen in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, They departed for their own country another way. And thus far, our reading from the Word of God this morning. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity again this morning to reflect upon the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, There is a danger, I believe, that perhaps at this point we might be overly accustomed. Uh, Even in this year's Advent sermons, we might be overly accustomed to hearing The report of the incarnation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, There is a danger that as we hear this morning's sermon, we might think, oh yes, I've heard that. I've heard that time and time again. The danger, congregation, ought to be alleviated by the recognition, as we'll also consider this evening, that time quickly gives way to eternity. Eternity. Time quickly gives way to eternity as the years continue to roll by. But time also quickly gives way to eternity as death continues to gather members of the human race into the realm of the eternal. And I would submit to you this morning that the most crucial question that must be answered in time before one enters into eternity is how you and I will meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice there is a powerful contrast in our text. There are the magi or the wise men or the kings from the east. They come having recognized the revelation given from heaven concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They come with an earnest desire within their hearts that they might find the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might then, in an expression of their faith, worship the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there is another person in the narrative. Herod. Herod also is confronted with the reality of the Incarnation. Herod also is confronted with the news that a king has been born. And Herod also displays, at least outwardly, some curiosity. And he also portrays a desire to know where this king is, that he also might come to worship him. But Herod is the hypocrite of hypocrites. He does not desire to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. No, indeed, he desires to eliminate the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you that all human persons fall either into the category of the wise men or Herod. Because all human persons, to some extent, must answer the question, what will you do with Jesus Christ, the King of kings, incarnate? Will you bend the knee of faith and receive Him and worship Him with great joy? Or will you ask some curious questions about Him only to reject Him out of a proud defiance. Well, we followed the magi or the kings or the wise men this morning to instruct us on in how we ought to receive Jesus Christ. And we do so with this theme, the magi appear before the king. And as we consider that theme, we'll notice the time of the appearance. And then we'll also notice the question in the appearance. And then thirdly, we'll notice the reason for the appearance. So the magi, and by magi, You can think wise men. You can think oriental kings. Influential persons from the east. They appear before the king and we put that specifically in the theme because that's underscored by our text. The wise men are not just appearing before an infant child. The wise men are not just appearing before a newcomer into the race of humanity, but the wise men are appearing before the king. Notice, the time of the appearance. These wise men, uh, who we would just simply say, uh, are some type of students of the stars from the east. Perhaps from uh, the Medes or the Persians. Perhaps from the Babylonian uh, era. Perhaps they had been influenced by Daniel and uh, the Judaism that had spread to that area or to that land. We don't know exactly who these persons were. We don't know exactly what they were about, but we know that they had seen a sign in the heavens. They had seen the star. The star that was symbolized and the star that had revealed to them a very significant spiritual event had taken place. And along with that perception, they also had a spiritual desire to go and to pursue a further understanding of what this star indicated. And so they appear at the time of the incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation, the Word became flesh. To be incarnate means to assume flesh in the sense of a human nature. And perhaps somebody hears these words for the first time this morning, or perhaps we hear them for the multitude of times. But we must understand, if we are going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, a healthy relationship is always based upon a knowledge of a person's nature. And, and that's why if you think uh, to a, a young couple who are beginning dating or courting whatever term you prefer, uh, a, a healthy relationship includes much communication, much revelation of who the person is, what their likes are, what their desires are, what their hopes are, and what their dreams are. We say this because there's an emphasis among many within the broad evangelical church today to say that well Christianity is all about a relationship with Jesus Christ and we agree. But in order to have a healthy and a mature relationship with Jesus Christ we must know who he is. And who he is is answered with the incarnation. He is in His very person, first of all, the eternal Son of God. Possessing an eternal divine nature, being very God of very God. And you notice that that's how the Gospel narratives begin, especially in John. The Word was God. And so our Christology, our knowledge of Christ, our understanding of the person of Jesus Christ must begin with this understanding that He is eternal God. But He's also, if we can say this properly understood, He is more than eternal God. He is also possessing of a real human nature. Now, boys and girls, uh, to try to help you begin to understand this, Jesus Christ has always been God. Even before there was anything else, Jesus Christ was God. Before you read Genesis 1, Jesus Christ was God. But when you get to the events that take place that are recorded by Matthew and Luke and John of what we call the Incarnation, there was a time in which Jesus Christ added to His person a real human nature. Underneath the work of the Holy Spirit, on Mary, or we might say within Mary, the eternal Son of God, took possession of a real soul and a real body. And so, boys and girls, we often say it this way, that that Jesus Christ is just like you in regards to his human nature. He had ten fingers and ten toes. He had eyes and ears. And not just in the past tense, he has eyes and ears, fingers and toes, according to his human nature. I say he was just like you, he is just like you in relation to his human nature, except that he did not have any sin. And here again, we do not explain these things just so that we can dot the I's and cross the T's of our theological precision but so that we might know who Jesus Christ is. And that we might then, by faith, have a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. And our text notes that all of this took place, this incarnation, this remarkable birth in Bethlehem, the city of David. And we know, of course, David, especially in the Old Testament, was recognized as the King of Israel. And so Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, which we considered some weeks ago, uh, has this prophetic oracle for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then the emphasis falls upon the, the kingship of this son and the government will be upon his shoulder. We know that David was one of the greatest kings of Israel, if not the greatest king of Israel. And a covenantal promise was given to David that David's descendant would sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Israel forever. Now that was not realized in Solomon. That was not realized in the kings that followed after Solomon. Ultimately, that kingship is realized in Jesus Christ. So you might say that Matthew 2 adds to our understanding of who Christ is by emphasizing the royal aspect. This incarnate Savior is the King of Kings. And so the time of the appearance of these magi is not just at the incarnation, but the establishment of the kingdom and these are not two separate events in our mind in the mind of faith we must understand that the incarnation is the establishment the historical establishment of the kingdom the kingdom of god the kingdom of heaven and as our christian faith matures uh, we ought to come to a healthy understanding of what exactly the kingdom of god is what exactly the kingdom of heaven is Now, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, often spoken of in Scripture, has broad implications. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, ought to impact, and indeed it does impact, what you and I do in our vocational lives, what you and I do in our relational lives, what you and I do even in our recreational lives. But if we focus in on the essential core center of the kingdom of God, we would say it is this. It is the redemptive rule of God in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The redemptive rule that includes all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for us and for our salvation. That is the kingdom of God. The establishment of the King Jesus Christ in His role of mediator. And one of the greatest benefits that this kingdom, this redemptive kingdom brings, is peace. And that's why Isaiah also calls the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And that is echoed with the angelic proclamation in Luke 2, verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth... Peace, goodwill toward men. And we would simply proclaim this morning to all who hear these words, there is only one way to obtain peace in this world and in your life. Now many people, if not all people, strive to attain peace. Some people think, well, peace will come if I can just simply have a psychological balance in my ego. Or peace will perhaps come if I can simply have the financial stability that I desire. Or perhaps peace will come if I have the social recognition that I long for. Or peace will come if my health is good and if all of the relationships in my life are Well, And all of these can be blessings that the Lord gives, but all of these are not the solid foundation for peace. Because what we need is peace, not just within ourselves, but what we need first and foremost is peace with our God. And any attempt to attain peace apart from peace with God is an absolute exercise in futility. Well, then the question is, What is peace with God? Well, peace is a relationship of harmony, a relationship of reconciliation. Peace comes when the sin and the misery that results from that sin is dealt with definitively through the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is this restored relationship with my Creator, with the Almighty God, with the transcendent God who is the highest object of my affections and of my worship. And peace includes the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. And that's why Romans 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this whole idea of peace. And he says, having been justified by faith, by a faith that embraces the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore receives the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore having been justified by faith, we have, notice the present tense, we have peace with God. How? Through our best efforts, through our religious activities, through our spiritual exercises? No. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And these magi, these kings, these eastern astrologers, they appear on the scene in the narrative of the Gospel according to Matthew at the time of the Incarnation when the Kingdom of God is historically established. And as we transition into our second point, let all of us be reminded and let us know that there is absolutely no peace ever to be attained apart from coming and beholding the incarnate Savior, the King of kings, with the eyes of faith. And that's how these magi appear. With faith. With an act of faith. With a genuine faith. With a saving faith. And if we have learned our catechism well, In our years of formative instruction, we know that true faith, genuine faith, includes basically two elements to it. There is a certain knowledge and also a a, a trust or a conviction or an assurance. And you'll notice that the Magi, the kings from the East, they, they have this faith because they come with this question. And the question is, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? The essence of the question is where? It's not, is there? They don't come and say, is there born a king? You see the difference? They come and they ask, where is He? Not, is He? And I say this because Doubt in our day and in our age is being celebrated also in spiritual or religious circles. And it takes the form of this, a criticism of any dogmatic conviction. Many who would hear the words that are spoken this morning as far as the proclamation that there is absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is the incarnate mediator and the one and only Savior, many also in religious circles would say, Oh, Don't be so dogmatic. Don't be so authoritative. Uh, don't be so close-minded. And, and many would come and they would say, "How do you know? How do you know for sure?" And and, and that has always existed. Pilate asked also, "What is truth?" But in our day and in our age, and a word especially for the young people as you perhaps study in institutions of higher learning or as you begin to find your way in life, just be forewarned that in our day, such doubt is being celebrated. You see, to be convinced of something is viewed in a negative light. Oh, he's just dogmatically closed-minded. But to be uncertain of everything is commended. Well, these wise men, they do not come to Bethlehem saying, I wonder if there is a king in town. They come having received a special unique revelation from heaven through the heavenly luminaries, whether it's stars or planets. They come being convinced that there is a king. The King of kings. And they want to know where He is. Not simply if He exists. He alone is the object of their quest and of their journey. And they're coming with one great desire. And you might think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 27. One thing I have desired of the Lord. And in essence, the one thing that the psalmist desired in Psalm 27 was to behold the beauty of the Lord. To behold, we might say, the establishment of the redemptive kingdom of God. We might even go so far as to say the one thing the psalmist desired in Psalm 27, verse 1, was the same thing as what the Magi desired. Let us see with the eyes of faith the reality of the incarnate Savior. And that must be also our desire when we are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person lying in the manger is the king of kings, then there will be a desire within our heart. Let me see him. Let me behold him because he is the object of all of my desires. And so we are reminded by the actions of the Magi and the question that they have uh, that our life, yes, is to be lived for the glory of God alone and is to be focused upon God alone, but more specifically is to be focused on Christ alone. You might think of the Apostle Paul's statement, for me to live is Christ. And we know that he goes on and he says, to die is gain. The only reason, and let us just put this in as we pass by, the only reason that death is gain is if life is Christ. And so the Apostle Paul shows us uh, that the very heartbeat of his life was all focused upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you this morning, as I reflect upon this myself, is the center focal point of our life the person of Jesus Christ? And it can be so subtle, but yet so dangerous that something else would eclipse the person of Christ. Even what may be Considered good things if they are held in proper relationship to Jesus Christ. If those good things are not held in a proper relationship to Jesus Christ, then those good things can actually become bad things. Good things can be idols that eclipse our focus upon Jesus Christ. The good things might even include family relationships. And of course, family is a good gift from God that is to be enjoyed and to be received. But if family begins to eclipse the person of Jesus Christ so that our focus is more upon the family than upon Jesus Christ, then there is this subtle imbalance. It might even be our spiritual exercises. The spiritual exercises in and of themselves, if they are viewed disconnected from the person of Jesus Christ, might actually become an idol. And so we need to continually ask ourselves as we go through the spiritual exercises of of prayer and of Scripture reading and even of corporate worship, even of receiving the sacraments, even of baptism and of the Lord's Supper, is Jesus Christ at the center of our attention? And from a theological perspective, I've had the opportunity uh, to listen in and also to uh, participate in, in many, many, many a theological debate over the doctrine of the covenant and over baptism, and whether the covenant is established with the elect only or with all of the children of believers head for head, and much is written and much is spoken about these matters. Here's the danger. That when we view baptism, we think more of these fine nuances in theology than we think of the person of Jesus Christ. And we perhaps see the administration of the sacrament of baptism. And our mind is filled with all of the theological wranglings. And we lose the sense of the wonder that the water symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. The same could also be applied to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now what is the motive for the question of the Magi? They come seeking the Lord Jesus Christ because they have seen a revelation from heaven. They have received a special revelation. Now, not the same form that we have today. We have our special revelation from God in the 66 canonical books that are written by inspiration, that are authoritative for our doctrine and for our life. And so, of course, but we just issue this as a warning, we don't look to the stars for special revelation. And we also don't look internally for special revelation. Uh, There are many a person today, again, in the broader church community, who would say, well, my star, so to speak, of revelation and of insight uh, is this internal belief that I have. Well, your internal beliefs must always be checked and always must square with what is given us in the Word of God. You might say it this way, our star, which we are to follow, And our quest to find Jesus Christ is contained in the written Word of God. Are they the Magi? They have seen with a perception that the incarnate King of Kings has arrived within human history. And they believe that revelation. And I would issue a humble but also a pointed call to everyone who hears, whether you're young or whether you're old, you and I have been confronted with the revelation of God concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. Do not doubt it. Do not stand back with some celebrated curiosity and just look upon it. Receive it. Believe it. Follow it. And come to know who Jesus Christ is. And knowing who Jesus Christ is, then bow before Him and worship Him. Because you see, that is why these magi appear. And our third point, the reason for the appearance. It is a desire to worship. And it's stated so plainly that it would be embarrassing if we missed it, you might say. In Matthew 2, uh, in verse 2, they come to Bethlehem, rather to Jerusalem, and they say, where is He who has been born King of the Jews? For we have seen His star in the east and have come to worship Him. Very simply, that's the reason for their appearance. We have traveled. We have come. We are inquiring because we desire to worship the King of kings because of who He is and because of what He has done. This is not just curiosity. This is not bare theological speculation. These magi are not just passing the time uh, as those characterized as the Athenians, just looking if there's some new spiritual teaching going through humanity. Their desire is to present themselves in their persons before the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, and to worship Him. What does that mean to worship Him? To acknowledge who He is and to respond appropriately with a posture of humility, but also with a posture of faith and of love and of adoration. And to present all that they are and all that they have before the King of Kings, the eternal Son of God incarnate. And so they come with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And many a commentator will describe why gold and why frankincense and why myrrh. We would take a much simpler approach. These magi, these kings from the east, these wise men, they present all of themselves, including their persons and including their possessions before the King of Kings. And this is what Worship is, as we heard in our call to worship from Revelation 5, verse 13 and 14. And every creature, and among those creatures, you can include these magi. And I trust that we can include ourselves this morning. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power. That in essence is what the magi are saying. Blessing. And honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And you see, when we meet together as a congregation, especially on the Lord's Day, we come and we present ourselves in a spiritual act of worship before the King of Kings. Now, of course, He's no longer lying in a manger here in the center of the sanctuary. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but we come in a spiritual act and we present ourselves before Him and we say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this ought to be what motivates our faithful but also our energetic participation in corporate worship. We should not simply gather together so that we can go and say, yes, I go to church twice a day on the Lord's Day. Now certainly, we ought to do that. But we ought to do that because we have a desire to present ourselves before the King of kings and to acknowledge Lord Jesus Christ to You belongs all power and glory for we have seen, we have perceived the special revelation given from heaven concerning who You are and what You have done. And of course, it's also important, as many of you well know, that these magi are Gentiles. As we considered yesterday morning, the shepherds, most likely of Jewish descent, they come, and so the Jews come and they present themselves as those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ and respond favorably with the expression of faith. But now also, foreigners come. Gentiles come. And so we are reminded of what is stated in Matthew 8, verse 11, where Jesus, in response to a Roman centurion's faith, says, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so the church is universal. Not that every single member of the human race will acknowledge Jesus Christ as King of kings in faith, but the church is universal and that it is the only organization that includes individuals of every ethnicity, of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue. So it is especially in the church that any type of ethnic or racial disparity ought to be eliminated. But it's also especially among the church that our view of evangelism ought to be as broad as the horizon. And we can ask ourselves also, do we really desire that people from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, that they would all come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are are, are we excited to see uh, the diverse makeup of the heavenly banquet? To say there are persons from the east and there are persons from the west. Do we have a desire to bring the Gospel to the ends of the world so that magi from the east might join with shepherds from Bethlehem in all bending the knee of faith and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. You can almost see the, the picture, can you not? And certainly this does not all take place on the same night that the shepherds come and the wise men come. But at the same time, in the sense of the Incarnation, you have shepherds, the lowest members of Jewish society. And you have eastern kings, the highest of society. Then you have Herod. And Herod, as we said before, serves as a powerful reminder that someone can be so close to the Incarnation and yet miss it so badly. Less than ten miles, I believe, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Herod doesn't make the trip. The scribes there in Jerusalem do not make the trip. And Herod, when he is confronted with the reality of the King of Kings, his heart is hardened. And he says, in the appearance of a hypocrite, yes, when you find him, come and tell me. Because I also desire to worship him. Herod had no desire to worship Jesus Christ. Herod had a desire to eliminate Jesus Christ. That's the desire of a hardened, impenitent, unbelieving heart. That's the heart of many, even in this Christmas season. Persons who perhaps are young, persons who perhaps are old, who do not want Jesus Christ in their life, who see Him as an obstacle, as a challenge, as an opponent, as an inconvenience, and who may say in some type of external formalism, sure we'll listen to the Christmas story. Sure, we'll listen to the Christmas songs. Sure, we'll send and we'll receive Christmas greeting cards. We'll look upon a nativity scene. But we will not have Him as King. We will do everything we can in our personal lives and in our corporate life to eliminate Him. That's the most deadly response. Because first of all, it forfeits any peace. Herod had no peace. Those who deny, reject the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no peace, even though they could have peace. The only reason Herod did not have any peace is because he refused to acknowledge Jesus Christ as King of Kings. And the only reason that a person today Will not have peace within their life is if they reject Jesus Christ as King of Kings. And so if someone hears these words, and if as of now you are actively rejecting Christ as King of Kings, I lovingly call you to lay down your arms of rebellion, to get off your throne of self-reliance. And to follow the shepherds. And to follow the magi. Saying, I have seen, I have heard the testimony that there is a King, a Savior. And I will join the innumerable multitude of persons who have made their way by faith and bent the knee in a holy act of worship and received and acknowledged Him as King of kings. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You once again that You've given us the opportunity in convenience and in ease and in comfort this morning to consider the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We thank You that where the stars continue to display Your majesty, Your Word reveals to us Jesus Christ. And as that Word reveals Jesus Christ, we pray that the Holy Spirit might give us a knowledge and a conviction that we will join with the Magi in saying, where is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings? And as we find Him seated on the throne in glory, may we then also worship Him both now and forevermore. We ask this for Jesus' sake, Amen.